morning we're going to take a look, and actually what we're going to do is we're going to pick up where we left off. Or the last couple of weeks we've been examining or addressing a question that every one of us at some point has asked, or maybe we even continually ask it as we look at the deterioration of our society. And that is the question of uh, where did our conscience go? It was interesting. This... Uh, This past week, I was uh, reading through, I think it was Time Magazine, and uh, it had a caption of a photograph that I believe uh, kind of summed it all up. It was a caption of the photograph of marketplace bombing that took place recently in Sarajevo, and the caption was simply this, this bombing pricked even the most numbed conscience. And it pretty much says it all, doesn't it? You know, if you stop and think about it, I got a fax this week from the Family Research Council. Uh, Gary Bowers, the president, works in Washington, D.C., and I received the fax. And one of the interesting things about this particular fax was that he addressed a meeting that took place uh, with the Republican committee, and they had hired a guy to come in and give him some input on what he thought was wrong with the party and how they needed to better, quote, market themselves. (laughs) And uh, the sad thing about it was that uh, the, the quote that took place in this meeting was the guy said, you know, you, you need to be more in tune with what the average American wants. He said, you know, the average American is in, in tune with people like Phil and Oprah and, you know, and the talk shows, and that's really what the average American wants. And, uh, we should, and, and this party should be listening more to uh, shock jocks like Howard Stern and, and people like that because they're in tune to what people are really interested in. And I pray to God that what is demonstrated on those shows is an aberration of our society and it's not represent, representative of what the majority of people are interested in. And, uh, and the sad thing is that you may, it makes you wonder sometimes, and I'm glad I'm not home much during the day, but the few times that I've turned them on and the, t- and the topics and the titles and the little teasers that they throw on you know, between the news and everything else, it's, 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 hopefully it's so bizarre that it's not in tune with what the average American is actually doing in his or her own life. Uh, yet, we're attracted to that. And the sad part about being attracted to that is that we become numb, our conscience becomes numb to the point that outrageous behavior such as is demonstrated on television and the radio today, that outrageous behavior not long ago the majority of God-fearing and God-loving Americans in our country would, would have responded with a passionate outcry as to what kind of nonsense is being portrayed on the public airwaves. That is the way it used to be. But what's happening is we're so inundated with all of this information coming from so many different sources in a variety of medium that we're getting bombarded on every side to the point where it's like nothing shocks any of us anymore. We're just totally numb to all of it. And that caption summarizes everything that I'm trying to get across, and that is that even this bombing pricked the conscience of the most, you know, the most seared American conscience. You know, something was resurrected within our souls that said, you know, when is this nonsense going to stop? And that's what I'm hoping that we do as we go through this and as we've looked at the last couple of weeks and that we look at this morning. I'm hoping that through the study of what God has to say and through the obvious conclusions that we see in society today that we would be pricked, so to speak, to our conscience, that our consciences would be resurrected before they totally die. Because when our conscience is dead, there's nothing that we will be able to do to stop what's going on in our culture. 
I would hope that we're still outraged by, by violence that we see in our society. I would hope that it still outrages us that a gal from Cal State Fullerton can't leave her, her place of business and end up found in the trunk of her car two or three days later. I would hope that that would outrage us. I would hope that it would outrage because our society's upside down. I would hope that it would outrage us that, that uh, criminals are being shown more compassion than the victims or the victims' families in our culture. I would hope that that would outrage us. I would hope that all of these things would get to the point where we'd just stand up and cry out, we've had enough of this nonsense, and we want to get people into government who represent the will of the people. That's what I would hope that would happen as we see all of this. I would hope we'd be outraged that animals are, begin, are given more protection than human beings. I would hope that we'd just get so sick of all of this that we'd stand up and we'd say something about it. That's what I'd hope that would happen. And as we go through this, you know, and talk about this whole upside-down society, probably the best example of this was a friend of mine who lives in Georgia that wanted to teach his son some of the history of the South. And, uh, you know, and it's, and it's interesting that if you do not teach your children history, then history will tend to repeat itself. Or you will forget history, and as a result, it will tend to repeat itself. That's why things like Schindler's List are, are, are so important, or to remember the Holocaust. It's so important to remember historical facts, things that took place in actual time and space, because those things, if we forget them, we will allow the same thing to take place again. History tends to repeat itself. So why does God give us the Word of God? Because He wants us to learn and understand history. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10 that the purpose that it's given to us is that it was an example to us to remember it, to go back to it, remember what they did wrong, remember what they did right. Don't repeat the wrong behavior. Repeat the right behavior. And the wrong uh, discipline, that, that consequences of wrong decisions won't happen in our lives and in our generation. But anyway, so He wanted to teach His Son the history of the South. There was one particular park in Georgia, and they walked by it on a regular basis as they, he would, would take them to school. And as he went through it, there was, a, the, there was a statue of General Robert E. Lee sitting atop his horse, Traveler. And as he would go through the park, he would tell his son's son, that's General Robert E. Lee. And uh, he would go through and explain some history. And uh, as he would go back on a regular basis, he would remind his son's son, say hi to General Lee. And the little boy would say, hi, General Lee. And they would do this for about three months. And finally, his son started really getting tuned into history, and he started to enjoy these talks and these walks that they had. And he said, Dad, you know what? There's one thing you've never explained to me. Who's that sitting up on top of General Lee? And see, he had things backwards or upside down. See, see the horse's name is Traveler. And I just, just, and, and do we get it? Okay, well, anyway. But that's, you see what happens when your conscience just kind of dies there, you know? You're just sitting there, you're all wet, and you're dead here. Now, come on now. But, but the point is that everything's upside down, and that's so reflective of our culture. Everything is backwards, and we need to make sure that we don't assume certain things. And what I'm starting to learn and understand is that we can't assume that people have the same base or frame of reference than we do. Because we're not starting from the same uh, foundation anymore as a culture. We're not starting from a foundation where everyone agrees that God exists, that everyone agrees that we're accountable to God, that everyone agrees that God will judge our actions, that everyone agrees that there's moral absolutes. We're not there anymore as a culture. And so what we have to do is we have to reestablish the foundation in order that people would better understand what we're trying to say. And as we go through this, basically what we're seeing in our society today is a direct result of our violating the moral absolutes of God. 
that's the result of violating God's standards in a society. What we see happening around us is exactly the consequences of disobedience to God. That's what we're experiencing. That's what we see happening on a regular basis. And we violate the, the Ten Commandments of God. And enough for all of the bad news. Because what I really want to talk about in this particular session is that there are answers to this moral crisis that we find ourselves in today. There are answers. There is hope. There are answers to the ways that we can revive our conscience. There are ways that we can restore our nation. And that there are ways that we can heal our land. And that we need to focus on that. Because we've seen the problems and we're all in agreement. There are problems and they exist. What can be done about it? That's really the, that's really the key. And if you've got your Bibles, there's no better place to turn for answers than Second Chronicles chapter 36 in the Old Testament. And I want to share this with you because the nation of Israel had found itself in a, in a situation morally as a nation, I would say exactly identical to the situation that we find ourselves in today. And as a result, they suffer the consequences of their disobedience. And God records this for us so that we do not repeat as a society the same foolish thing that they did because God judged them for what they did. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, we see, an, we see a very vivid illustration of this. And we'll use it as a foundation for what we're going to talk about. Second Chronicles chapter 36, we'll pick up the account in verse 11 as we try to address the answers to the problem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an allegiance by God. But he stiffened his heart, he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. And the Lord, the God of their father, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all of its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all of its valuable articles. And those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All of the days of its desolation it kept the Sabbath until 70 years were complete. As we take a look at this particular historical account in the, in the history of uh, the Israel, uh, nation of Israel, we see some truths that take place that very closely parallel to what we're going through today. And the first thing that's real important is that we understand that, that God allowed Babylon to invade the nation of Israel, and he used them as a discipline tool 
to accomplish his purposes. There's one thing that we have to understand and always understand, and that is that God is in control. God is sovereign. When we look at our society today and we think that it's going, quote, it's going to hell and it's all falling apart, we need to understand that that's not true from the standpoint that God doesn't know what's going on and doesn't allow it to happen. This past week there was one, I don't know which news channel it was, but they were interviewing um, clergy from different denominations, different, different walks, you know, just trying to represent all the different brands that are out there. And um, they were asking the question, was the earthquake that took place in Northridge, was it part of God's judgment for our culture? And it was fascinating just to hear the wide range of answers that were represented by that. And I had answered that very simple. And that is that if we were disobedient, you know what, it's kind of, here, let me give you an example. Maybe this will make more sense on an individual basis, and then I'll, then I'll share it collectively. But I, a friend of mine who played football had, had, uh, had his knees blown out. And we're sitting together, and we're talking, and he had just come home from the hospital, and he had the operation. And we're just sitting, and we're talking about, you know, why does stuff like that happen? That's a, that's a valid question, and, and it's one that needs to be addressed. And he said, you know, why does that happen? And his attitude was, is God trying to get even with me for something? How many of you have ever felt that? You're going through a tough time, you feel like, is God trying to get even with me for something that I did? You know, is he trying to drop kick me through the goalpost of life? You know what I mean? It's like, what's going on here? And, and the, only, the only thing that I could help him with was to ask him this question. Are you disobedient in your life to something that you know that God holds as an absolute standard? Are you living in disobedience to absolute standards of God? That's a question that you've got to ask yourself. Because if you are, then I can clearly teach you that God may be disciplining you through this process to bring you to repentance. If you're not, or if you have confessed things that have taken place prior in your life, and God has forgiven you for them, and they are removed from your, quote, Existence and God's existence, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us and cleanse us from all of it. When we confess our sins as God's people, he removes that from us for all of eternity. It's gone as far as the east is from the west. And if we've confessed it, then God no longer is waiting for the day where he's trying to judge us or get even with us for something that we did in our past that we've confessed and he's forgiven. But if there's something in the present that we're doing and we're not repentant before God, God is doing everything he can to get our attention and so that he would bring us to repentance and that we confess that sin. So going back to the illustration, is there something in your life that you need to confess before God? Because if there is, then you need to repent because God's using this to bring you to repentance. Now, if there isn't, then look at James chapter 1, and that is that God allows trials to take place in our life to bring forth endurance to, to, to produce spiritual maturity in our life. And really, that's the only two ways that you can look at the ordeals that you go through in life. One is God's driving you to, to your knees to repent for something that's going on. Or two is that he's bringing you spirit, to spiritual maturity. That's it. That's the only two ways you can look at anything that takes place in your life. So now we go back through the question again. Is, a, is an earthquake that takes place in Southern California God's discipline? And you've got to ask yourself the big question. Are we doing things as a society that blatantly are in disregard to, to the uh, absolute moral standards of God? And when we can collectively say, no, there's no question about it, then why in the world would we want to ignore the obvious? God's doing everything that he can to get our attention. And here's how I know that. Because look what it says here. Zedekiah did evil in the sight of God. 
It's a reminder to us that God is the one who establishes absolutes. God determines what is right. God determines what is wrong. For it was God who determined what Zedekiah was doing as the leader of the nation of Israel that was wrong before God. And so as a result, God would judge him. And as a result, God would judge the people that he also governed. Because when the righteous rule, the people rejoice, but when the ungodly are in office, the people groan. Let's face it, you know it and I know it. When there's ungodly leadership in the home, it destroys a family. When there's ungodly leadership in a business, it destroys a business. When there's ungodly leadership in society, it destroys society, and all of us suffer as a result of it. But the wonderful thing about our country is that we have an opportunity, because we're a nation that's governed by the people, through the people, that we can change the leadership if it doesn't represent the moral standards of God. And so as we go through this, because if we don't, we are all going to suffer as a result of it. So you can't be apathetic about this, and you can't say it's someone else's problem, because blessings of God overflow upon the people of God, and also so do the discipline and the consequences equally. Because look at what happened. Zedekiah did what was wrong before God. He had a pride problem. He rebelled against the authority of God, and he also rebelled against the authority of Nebuchadnezzar, who Nebuchadnezzar appointed him as king, and yet once he was king, Zedekiah said, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. The guy was in rebellion. And so what happened was God sent messengers to Zedekiah over and over and over and over again. And he said, repent, repent, repent. Stop doing what you're doing. Turn to the Lord, ask for forgiveness, and God will forgive you. You see what's going on? And he continually ignored them. He ignored God's messengers. He ignored God's absolute truth. And you know what happened? God said he finally got to the point of saying, I'm so sick of this. I'm just going to use this nation of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm going to take all these people, and we're going to put them into captivity for 70 years until they finally learn a lesson. God took them out to the woodshed, and he taught them a lesson. So when we do this, as we go through this, we need to ask ourselves some questions because what was the problem? The problem was Zedekiah forgot his accountability before God. He forgot his accountability before God. Let me just share this with you because I think it's appropriate for us as individuals and collectively as a society. When you or I forget our accountability before God, it marks the beginning of the end or it marks the beginning of God stepping in and starting to discipline us. When a child forgets his accountability to a parent, it sets off in motion the discipline process. It begins it. When a player forgets his accountability before a coach, it sets off in motion that that player is out the door or that player will soon be cut unless that player turns around, straightens up, apologizes, asks for forgiveness, and begins to fall into line. If you do it at work, the same thing happens. When you rebel against authority or I rebel against authority, it immediately begins to trigger a discipline process. What happened here? They forgot their authority. They forgot their accountability to authority, and it triggered God's discipline process. And it's no different for us. See, when you look at what happened with Zedekiah, he had a pride problem because he didn't regard God's authority, he didn't regard man's authority, and he didn't honor his word because he swore an allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar when he had, when he had, straightened, when he had put him into office. So now we go through this. The underlying problem is that he forgot the Lord. Think about this. It's the beginning of the end for individuals and also for nations. When we as a nation begin to forget the Lord, it triggers that discipline process by God. 
when we as a nation allow people to make blatantly uh, uh, you know, unbelievable uh, statements such as God is dead or we don't want God to be represented anywhere in our schools or in our government or we want to take prayer out of school or we want, we want to remove any obvious evidence of God's existence from our culture, when we begin to do that and allow that to take place, it begins that triggering process when we remove school, uh, prayer from schools and nativity scenes from government buildings. If you start to look at all the things that are going on, Here's the most incredible thing I've ever heard recently, and this has taken place, true story, Cobb County, Georgia. When you pay a traffic fine in Cobb County, Georgia, you look up to not only to the, uh, to the, the law of the land, but also to the law of God. Because right above the judge's head is a plaque with the Ten Commandments. So you're looking at the judge, and he issues you a citation, and you're looking at him, and you're also looking at the Ten Commandments of God. Now, that plaque has peacefully coexisted, coexisted with the laws of, uh, of Georgia for the last 30 years. But one day, this very bright-eyed law clerk looks over and he sees this plaque there, and he calls the ACLU. And he said, do you know that there's a religious symbol hanging in the county courthouse? And so the ACLU, with their $14 million a year in their budget that they have, and 5,000 volunteer uh, lawyers that also volunteer their time and 2,500 staff positions of attorneys who are looking to destroy our country every way that they can, they come up and they say, listen, we're going to sue the state of Georgia unless they remove that from the wall. Well, they took the suit to the, to the state of Georgia. The judges that sat in and heard it said, you know what, we're throwing it out of court. And the simple reason is that because a courthouse can display examples of codified law. They always could and they always would. And, and, that's what, and they threw it out of court. But, but the point is, is that they said, well, wait a minute, this is codified law. This is an example of law. This is what we're here to represent. That, that's, that's ridiculous. It's the dumbest thing we've ever heard. So they threw it out of court. But you see, they're not satisfied with that. So now they're going to appeal it. And they're going to take it to a higher court. And there it goes. And, and based on the ACLU's definition, their definition of separation of church and state, then our Constitution would be illegal or it would be unconstitutional. <laughs> I don't know how they're going to do that, but, but that's what they'd say. Our Constitution is unconstitutional. Why? Because it, because it mentions God as our creator who granted all of us with certain inalienable rights. So all of a sudden that can't be right. You can't go to Washington, D.C. and walk anywhere without seeing examples of what our forefathers had in mind as they founded this country. And so one idea was this. Well, here's what we can do. We can somehow take the Ten Commandments and we'll decorate it like art. And if we decorate it like art, not only will it become art, but we can probably get a grant from the endowment society for, you know, and if we can really mess it up, then well, I'm sure we'd be eligible for it. If you could deface it in some way, then it qualifies as art, and then you can get a government grant. But you see, the problem is we, can sh we can't show respect for religion in public or we risk being taken into court. See how, how crazy this has all become? What's the answer to it? Real simple. I mean, th these are going to just like, these are going to be so deep. You're going to go, whoa. <laughs> Answer number one, we've got to remember the Lord. That's that simple. What? And we've got to remember to move over this way. Is that right? Yeah. Or I'll just do that. But we got, you know what? We really do. We have to remember the Lord. That's the bottom line. We have to remember the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. What do we need to remember about him? Class. 
Cleopas, huh? Audience time. What? Okay, he's in control. He's still the boss. He's still on the throne. That's the first thing. God is sovereign. We need to remember it. See, th- this would be a great exercise for all of us. What else do we have to remember? What? That he does forgive, and that's important. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear them from heaven. That God forgives sin. That he is a God who hears prayer. Remember the, the, the religion of secular humanism said we can't believe in this, this, this notion of a, a God who hears our prayers. How ridiculous, how absurd. But it's the God of the Bible and it's the God that, that, that created you and I. What else do we have to remember? That he's righteous, that he has a standard, that that moral standard, they're absolute, and that's the way that it is. That he's holy, that he's righteous, that those standards aren't going to change because we decide, uh, everyone that, that watches Oprah decides that they don't like him and they all vote to change it. It doesn't matter because God's in authority. It's not going to change all of that. What else do we have to remember? That he's our Savior, that there's no other way to be right before God without turning to him, and speaking of specifically of turning to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. But there's something that's very fundamental that we need to remember. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says this, Remember this day your creator. God is the creator and author of all of life. Not this evolutionary nonsense that we hear that tries to deny God's creative work. God is the creator of human life. God has created you and I in, in, our, in his image and in his likeness. And we can never forget that because it's a fundamental truth by which everything else stands upon. God creates life, and as a result, he is in authority. And if he created life, we owe him our physical life because he has given it to us. And if Jesus Christ died for our sins and he has given us spiritual life, we owe him our spiritual life for all of eternity as well. God gives you physical life, you owe him. Without him, you wouldn't be here. Without him, you're nothing. And if he decides to call your spirit right at this moment, he's checking you out. You're gone. And as a result, Solomon said at the end of Ecclesiastes, you know what I've learned through my life? I need to fear God. I need to have a good, healthy, strong dose of fear for God because if he decides now, I'm done. Think about that. We've lost that in our culture. We don't fear God. We're not obedient to his commandments. We don't fear him at all because we don't want to believe he exists. We don't acknowledge his existence. But if he wants to, he could take you out right now. If he wants to shake up the earth and cause major earthquakes, he can do it now. If he wants tornadoes and hurricanes and everything else to take place to get us to repentance, he can do it now. Because it's with his word he spoke and everything came into existence. And all he's got to do is go like that and the earth will pick up, shake up, and throw us all over the place. We better decide as a people and as a nation that we need to fear God again. Because when we fear God, it scares us to the point where we need to be humble before God and say, what can I do? If you're afraid of your boss because you may lose your job, you may end up falling in line and you won't be as rebellious. If you fear your parents, there's nothing wrong with a good old healthy dose of fear for your parents, regardless of all this nonsense about abuse and everything else. I know that there's abusive situations and I'm not in any way condoning any of it. But let's understand something. We need to get back to the days where kids fear the authority of their parents because they had control over what could take place in the family not anymore we'll sue you make my bed you're going to jail you know that's how crazy this has all become I didn't talk back to my parents I grew up with a healthy fear of it you know why because I get stinking backhanded across the room 
And I'm not saying that's the best way to do it, and I wouldn't do it to my kids, but I'll tell you what, I love them and I'll discipline them, and they better fear me because they step out of line. I'm not messing around. But what's the, what's the deal? I mean, we can't... What, see, it's like, oh, I can't believe someone's talking like that. Oh, sue me, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, wh- when are we going to start just t- saying the truth? Think about it. One of the most important things I ever learned. 1978, I became a Christian. One of the most important things I ever learned when I started reading through the Bible. You know what it was? I was reading through the book of Genesis, and here's Adam, and he's blaming God, and he blamed Eve for everything that he did. You know what I realized? Right off the bat, most important thing I ever learned, it was this statement. I am responsible for my actions before God. The second thing was, I am accountable before God for my actions. Those are two things I learned right from the beginning, and I've never forgotten them ever since. Why? Because God listened to Adam. Adam, what you do? Oh, man, you, 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 if, you, you know, you made this gal. What was he doing? Right off the bat, first sin that we see throughout all of human history was, it's your fault, it's not mine. This whole society of victimization is so stupid and ridiculous that we need to go back to Scripture and find out, listen, I don't care what jury lets you off the hook, you're still accountable before God, and God will judge you for your actions, plain and simple. That's the way it is. This Rose Cipollone. Who's Rose Cipollone? Rose Cipollone. She smoked a pack and a half of cigarettes every day for 40 years. See, guess what happened to Rose? Can anybody guess what happened to Rosie? Rosie got lung cancer. I am so shocked. I can't even believe this. But what did Rosie do? Did she blame herself? Did she say, well, I rolled the dice with my health and I lost? Oh, well, smoking was fun. What did she do? She sued three major cigarette companies. Why? Oh, because they killed me. Why did they do it? Because they produced the product. Well, gee, you know what? I mean, okay, well, here's how stupid this gets. So you're standing on top of a ladder and you fall off. Whose fault is it? It's the people that made the ladder. Because if there's no ladder, I'm not standing on it. I drive myself into a telephone pole. I wreck my car. Whose fault is it? I don't know. It's either the telephone company's fault for putting the pole there where they shouldn't. Or it's the car manufacturer's fault for making a car that I can run into a telephone pole because they should know we do stuff like that and they should make cars that don't run into other things. That's the way it should be. That's the way it is. Dan White. What's this Dan White Twinkie thing? Dan White. This is where it all started. San Francisco walks in. He shoots all these people. And here's his defense. I ate a steady diet of junk food. It raised my blood sugar and it addled my brain. It was the Twinkie defense. Here's a good one. Here, ladies, you're going to like this one. This is a good one. All right, here you go. Here's a lady that gets pulled over by the Virginia police for erratic driving. She cursed, kicked, and scored above the legal limit on the breathalyzer. You think she's busted, right? She goes into court. She says she wasn't drunk but she was experiencing PMS. Her hormones made her do it. And you know what? She got off. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Look at everything else that's going on around us. I got one in mind I don't want to share. The one you're laughing about. 
Let me read something. This is so ridiculous. I mean, but this is how stupid all this is. You know what? We need to remember God. You know why? Because we're accountable to Him. That's why. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm responsible before God for my actions. It doesn't matter what my parents were like. It doesn't matter what my siblings were like. It doesn't matter what other people were like and how they treated me. You know why? Because God forgives sin. You know why? Because God says if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. And I believe that. That's why. Because I believe what God says. I believe I'm responsible for my actions. I believe I'm accountable for my actions. And I don't believe in this whole thing of victimization because the Bible doesn't teach it. In fact, teaches exactly the opposite. We need to get back to those standards or else we're all going to be in trouble. We need to remind ourselves, as Nehemiah reminded the workers around the wall, he said this, remember God who is great and is awesome. That's what we need to remember. Man, it's amazing to me. A handful of, we got a handful of people trying to eliminate all evidence, all evidence of God's existence in our society, and then we wonder why we're all messed up and why our court systems are upside down and why we're going through all the problems that we're going through. It's pretty easy because no one's accountable for anything anymore. Everyone's a victim but the victim. But not God. He's not fooled by any of this nonsense. Payday one day. One day we'll be held accountable for everything that we did. See, we need to understand that. We need to understand all that because it's a fool who says in his heart that there is no God. Why? Because if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and what? Believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we'll be saved. It's important what our heart's doing. It's important what our heart believes. And if a fool says there is no God in his heart, then there's no hope for that fool because he will be judged by God for all of eternity for his rebellion against God. It's important what our heart's thinking. Also, the second thing is you would think that this is a natural, but you know what? When we remember God, we should also respond obediently to the commandments of God. If I know that I'm accountable before God, and I know that God will judge me if I disobey God, then also I should also realize that, you know what? The smartest thing to do is do the right thing. Think about it. When do you have most harmony in your home? When everybody's in agreement with who's in charge, and everyone does according to what that authority is. Everything's great. What happens when one person decides, I'm not going to listen to you, and they go in rebellion, a whole household gets messed up. What happens on a team when someone says, hey, I'm not listening to you, and they begin to get quoted in the newspaper and everything else? The whole thing gets screwed up. What happens in a business if you, you know, you're, you're in a rebellion against your boss? Everything falls apart. And what happens in society when we shake our fist in God's face and say, we're going to do what we want to do? Because we don't like the rules you laid out. We're going to experience the consequences that we experience. That's as simple as it gets. We need to understand it. It should cause us to be obedient to God. When we remember God, we should be motivated to be obedient because disobedience isn't exactly the best course to take. Jesus said this to his people. Hey, you know what? If you love me, you obey my commandments. That's as simple as it gets. If you love God, you'll be obedient to him. What happens? You know what happens? People in the church, so-called Christians, who supposedly love God and then go out in their individual life and totally disobey the principles of God. we got Christians who go out and blatantly disobey the commandments of God and then wonder why they have a problem in their own life or wondering why we as a society have a bigger problem. It's because God's people are hypocritical. They love God, but they don't want to obey Him. And so society sees and says, man, if, if you don't obey the God you say you believe, then how am I going to understand what you believe if I can't tell by the way you live? And I don't even believe God exists, so I'm going to do what's best for me and what feels good. 
And Isaiah said, woe to any society that does, that calls evil good and good evil. That gets everything upside down. We need to, as people who say we love Christ, we need to be obedient in every area of our life. When people see you live your life in every arena that God puts you in, do they see Jesus or not? Do they see good works so that God in heaven will be glorified by what you do? It's time that God's people, and this is where it all starts, because that's why God held the nation of Israel into strict accountability, because they were God's people here on earth representing the righteous standards of God, and when they compromised, God said, I can't have any of this because you're it. You're everything that I have to demonstrate my righteousness. When God's people here on earth today deny the Spirit of God and the conviction of God in their own life, and when we don't do what's right before God, God says, how am I going to reach the world if you're in disobedience? I can't afford this to happen. I'm going to have to discipline you until you repent so I can use you as an agent to bring change to the world that you live in. I take a lot of responsibility for what's going on in our society. And I hope you do too until you straighten up and you repent and you walk with God and you're obedient and then God can use you to change the system that's around us. Don't accept this system. God wants to use you to change it. Which brings up this point and it's important because we need to reject false beliefs and sinful practices. We need to be vocal in our objection to all of it. We think somehow or another that we are being, I don't know, magnanimous or something, or loving or compassionate to embrace every stupid idea that comes up and to tolerate all of it. But you know what God has always, always said throughout the history of, of the world that we know is that sinful practices and God's righteousness do not peacefully coexist in any society. One will overtake the other. You can't live in a world and say, okay, you can do your thing over here and we'll come quietly to church and we'll do our thing and let you do what you want. We cannot allow sinful practices to take place in society without vocally showing our opposition to it. We have to call it for what it is. We call evolution for what it is. It's a religion that denies the existence of God. Therefore, it can't be tolerated as taught as fact. It needs to be taught as theory. And if it's taught as theory, creationism should be taught as theory alongside of it. That's it. That's what we should tell. We don't need to tolerate New Age. We don't need to tolerate the psychic nonsense that's on all the TV shows and dial this phone number or whatever. We need to just tell people for what it is. This stuff is in opposition to the Word of God. It violates His righteous standards, and we shouldn't tolerate it in any way. We need to be vocal. We need to be heard about it. We have to reject it. Secular humanism, situational ethics, the occult, Satanism, practices of abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, the elevation of a creation over the Creator, all of these things that are going on around us, being threatened by lawsuits at the expense of moral absolutes. We need to be able to stand up and say, hey, I've had enough of this because this is nonsense and it's in violation of the word and the will of God. And if we don't stand up and do it, nobody else will. We need to remember God. We need to respond obediently to his commandments. We need to reject openly and vocally reject false beliefs and sinful practices in the church and outside the church for what it is. And then we also need one last thing. We need a moral and a spiritual revival in our country such as the one that we had in the days of the American Revolution. That's what we need. Where God's principles of right and wrong will be reestablished in our hearts as God's people, in our textbooks that we teach our kids, our schools, and our government, and it'll serve as a foundation of morality and the basis upon which our courts will judge and also our politicians will govern. That's what we need before it's too late. We need to remain committed to religious freedom. 
but not at the price of renouncing our moral and spiritual heritage or eliminating our concern for moral values. We do not have to embrace another, quote, religion that denies a moral consensus that has been established by the Ten Commandments of God. You know, it was Hitler. How many of you saw Schindler's List? How many of you have ever been to Auschwitz or any concentration camp in Germany? If you've ever been to Auschwitz, you've noticed that there's a big sign at the entrance of Auschwitz, and this is what it said. Hitler's words, I want to raise a generation devoid of conscience. That's what Hitler said. And if you've seen the movie Schindler's List, you sat there like everybody else and said, how in the world can people do this to another human being? Because he wanted to raise a generation that was devoid of conscience. And what he did deliberately, we've allowed to take place in our country subconsciously. And isn't it ironic that the Western world stood up and said, we're not going to let you do it. And yet the same thing's happening here. I made that statement at the uh, uh, Camp Pendleton a couple weeks ago when I spoke there. And the commanding officer came up to me later and said, Chuck, he goes, you made a statement about us subconsciously allowing this to take place in our country. He says, I just want to tell you that I don't believe it was subconsciously at all. I believe it was deliberate, and I believe that there are many people who are responsible for it. You know, and the conspiracy theories are all big, but let me tell you something. I believe in the biggest conspiracy theory of all, and that is that Satan's out to destroy the work of God and the kingdom of God, and he uses his people to do that. And I believe that there is an overwhelming conspiracy to destroy our country because our country stood for everything that God held in highest standards. The Declaration of Independence said that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That they're instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And when I read that, I begin to realize, you know what? Our political officers, our government officials, our justices and judges and everybody else that's appointed through political process. The Declaration of Independence says that they get their power from the consent of the governed. The wonderful thing about change is that we can change the system because we have a say in who governs us. I want to talk in great detail about this on this whole separation of religion, religion and state and the separation of religion and government later on. But this is good news. You have a say in who represents you. <clears throat> you have a right to ask where they stand on moral issues. And we need to get more actively involved in that. Because if I read the Declaration of Independence correctly... They get their power from the consent of the governed. Benjamin Franklin said this, Sir, I have long lived. You know what's amazing to me? Either people who look back on our history are totally ignorant of our history, or at worst, they are liars and they're deceivers and they're trying everything they could do to rewrite it. Because you tell me what this says. Benjamin Franklin said this, Sir, I have lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see that God still governs in the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without our father's notice, is it possible that we can build an empire without our father's aid? I believe the sacred writings which say this, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. James Madison, the framer, one of the framers of the Constitution, said this, we have staked the whole future of American civilization not upon the power of government, far from that, we have staked the future of our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government, upon the capacity of each <clears throat> and all of us to govern ourselves, 
to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. General Douglas MacArthur wrote this, History fails to record a single precedent in which nations subject to moral decay have not passed into political and economic decline. There has been either a spiritual awakening to overcome the moral lapse or a progressive deterioration leading to ultimate national disaster. And he's right. And this is what we need. As individuals, we need to remember God, that we're accountable to him, that we're responsible for our actions. As Christians, we need to respond obediently to the commandments of God. We need to be light in this world. We need to be salt in this world. We need to also be vocal as we reject false beliefs for what they are, beliefs that undermine the very foundation that our country was established upon, and that was the moral absolutes of God. And then we also need, number four, we need a revival in our country where men and women will get back down on their knees, they'll ask for forgiveness for their sin. God promises to heal us, to forgive us, and to heal our land. That's what we need more than anything I can think of. And as we go through each successive week, we'll see how important that really is. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time to be together. Thank you for your truth, just for some direction and counsel. Thank you for uh, sharing with us the history of the nation of Israel so that we can learn from their mistakes, that we can see how compassionate that you are, that you continually brought messengers to them to bring about repentance, and yet they continually rejected your word. God, how true that is today. Whereas we turn to your word, you continually tell us. We continually hear messages all around our country from God-fearing and God-loving men and women who say the answer is we need to repent. We need to get back down on our knees. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need to get back up, and we need to be heard as we walk righteously with you. God, may we not tolerate all the nonsense around us as somehow or another a sign how, how, how open we are. Because there's many things that are out to destroy the framework of our country. We can't peacefully coexist with sin. You make that very clear all throughout your word. God, help us to take a stand, to be educated, to understand the issues, to understand your word so we can compare your, those issues to what you have to say. And God, may you hear us as you promise that you will as we ask for forgiveness. May you hear us May you forgive us, and as you say, may you heal our land, and we'll just praise you for it. May we never forget you. In Christ's name, amen.